No one can do the right thing every single day. But if the people in the organization know that they can hold you to account, you know, I think that's the best way to ensure that you yourself are living the values that you espouse. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organizations, and communities. Hello, coffee potters. This week's guest is Holly Kramer. That's right. Just to confuse you, we've got two Hollies on the podcast this week. Holly Kramer is a prominent non-executive director on the boards of organizations like Woolworths, Two Times You, and Australia Post. But she's also got a really interesting corporate history. She cut her teeth in roles in executive level at Pacific Brands, Telstra, and the Ford Motor Company across both Australia and the USA before she found herself at the helm of Best and Less a retail company with 4,000 employees and 200 stores that was not in a great place when Holly found it or when Holly took over as CEO. And really what we're going to focus on in this podcast is what it takes to drive transformational change in a business. How is it that you can lean in to the customer experience, understand their needs and transform the way that you deliver products and services? What does it take to shift the culture and re-engage your people? And how is it you can inject innovation and agility in thinking and operating back into the way that you work? Without further ado, I'm going to let the other Holly, or H1 as I call her, take over. Enjoy. Well, Holly Kramer, I am absolutely thrilled to have you here on Coffee Pods. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I've had the benefit of sitting at your feet and learning a lot over the course of the last few years, and I'm so excited to get to open that up to all of our Coffee Pod audience today. So thank you for joining us. Oh, well, Holly, you're very generous. I'm quite thrilled as well. And I have also learned an enormous amount from you. So this is an exciting opportunity for me too. Now, there's so much I want to get into, but I feel like we've got to go kind of back to where it started before we get into the here and now. So I wanted to ask, to begin with, what was a young Holly Kramer growing up in in Billings, Montana, passionate about? And how did that factor into some of your kind of early career choices, decisions around what to study and and where you started uh, your career journey? Well, Montana is a beautiful part of the U.S. in the mountains, but it is also quite remote. And I think from a young age, I always um, had a desire to um, be adventurous and see the world. Um, And I think the other major influence was my mom, who was very much involved in politics. And so it gave me an interest, um, not just in the world um, from an adventure perspective, but, you know, what was happening politically in our country and in the world. And um, because she worked for our U.S. senator, I went and uh, lived in Washington, D.C. when I was in my junior year of high school uh, to work as a, a page in the U.S. Senate. So it was a really extraordinary exposure to, um, well, just the world, but the world of politics. And um, so I think that's what gave me an early interest in 
just how the world operated and how our country was run. And it made me feel like, you know, I saw people who made a difference and it made me feel like there was an opportunity to do that. And when you were thinking about, you know, where you might track your own course of difference, what you might pursue uh, in those early years, what was it that you thought you might make a career out of in those early days? Well, I'm certainly going to date myself with this answer, but <laughs> um, I grew up, as you know from your history books, I grew oh, up come on um, now. during uh, the era of the Cold War. And so the big overarching issue um for me, was the threat of nuclear war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which is why I'm sort of extraordinary. Um, it's extraordinary to me to see that my daughter, um, you know, has to has to fear that the um, nuclear, uh, the threat of nuclear war with North Korea, because you know I just thought that was a generation ago and um, the world had moved on. But that was a very big issue in the time that I was um, thinking about my future and my career. So my early interest was in economics and political science, and that's what I majored in at university. And in those days, I had intended, um, well, to go to law school and to most probably work in the public service, um, you know, either in the diplomatic corps or um, and I'm not sure if I've ever told you this, Holly, but I also um, interviewed to work for the CIA. So wow. I, certainly wanted to, I certainly wanted to play my part in securing world peace. Let's put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know how idealistic we are when we're young. <laughs> I love that. I have not heard that anecdote yet. That's really interesting. So it was a twist of fate that you ended up pursuing business. Yeah, it is actually. I went, my first job was in New York City and I worked for the not for, a not-for-profit organization that organized travel between the U.S. and this, what was it, the Soviet Union at the time. And at, when I was at university, we set up university exchange programs. So I was at Yale and we set up an exchange program with Moscow University. And then when I went to this not-for-profit, it was to raise funds to set up 20 more university pairings. And that was very interesting and very exciting, but I found the not-for-profit sector um, sort of not as professional, I guess. And, and I decided at that point that I really wanted to be involved in an organization and learn how to run them well. And so I wound up doing an MBA at Georgetown. And from there, I sort of fell into an incredible career opportunity with Ford Motor Company. So I guess sometimes best laid plans um, don't always work out the way we think. But I think if I look at my whole career, it's always been opportunistic to uh, some extent. And Ford Motor Company just gave me an incredible opportunity at that point in my career and, um, and I guess headed me down a different path. So what did working inside, you know, an enormous behemoth really, I think we could describe Ford as, what did that teach you in terms of that early grounding it gave you in business? I was on a graduate program where I realized very early on that the best opportunities for me were those that I went and sought out for myself and put my hand up and volunteered for um, because we did have the opportunity to move around quite a different number of um, areas in the business. And so I realized that if I just sat and waited for someone to put me somewhere, I wouldn't get nearly the opportunity 
that I would if I started out. So it really taught me to be proactive um, in terms of managing my own career. Because in a big behemoth, as you say, um, you know, no one is really looking out for you. You've got to do that for yourself. The other thing that was important was I had a mentor. There was one woman who ran four divisions. She was by far the most senior woman in the whole of the company. Um, and she was just a fabulous mentor for me. So um, I think finding a mentor, listening to them for advice, the prevailing wisdom then was that um, being out in the field working with car dealers was no longer the route to a great career. Um, she said to me, that was hogwash. <laughs> she said, you must go out. You must be on the front line. You must learn how the business operates. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't just having her as a mentor. It was listening to her wisdom and taking her advice. And that that piece of advice was um, one of the best I'd ever gotten because, you know, you have to learn a business um, from the bottom up and certainly from the call face where um, your business engages with customers. That's certainly been a theme that's gone through the rest of my career. I love that bit of advice. I'm curious. There's, there's two things I want to ask on that. The first was just reflecting on probably being in the car industry, being in the car industry at that period of time, and even your reference to the fact that that your mentor was sort of almost exclusively the only female in that sort of senior leadership role within Ford. I know you're personally exceptionally passionate about uh, diversity and inclusion. Was that at all the where that kickstarted for you in terms of seeing the, the the importance of that in business and I guess that becoming one of the things you've really tried to drive in your own leadership? I'd like to say yes, but unfortunately the answer is no. And I have talked a lot about my experiences with gender. And the reason I, you know, actually can definitively say no is because in the early stages of my career, I was you know, I would say oblivious to the issue of gender. I just saw myself as, you know, a, a driven, hardworking, aspiring young business person. And, you know, initially I didn't even see gender as an issue, didn't think of myself as, as a woman ever. Um, and then as I went further in my career, and there were certainly plenty of instances in particularly now in hindsight that I think, oh my goodness, how did I not see any of that? Um, I, you know, I even went so far as to kind of deny that gender was an issue, um, to ignore all of the signs <laughs> that, um, that were in front of me. And, you know, in a way I think try to just ignore that, that that issue existed. And I certainly would not want to be drawn out or talk about it. And, I think that's an issue. Well, I, I now know because of all of the feedback I've gotten in talking to people that that is a very real issue for most women coming up through their career, whether they're oblivious to it or they just simply don't want to acknowledge it or put their head up and speak about it. You know, it's, it feels much easier and much safer, um, you know, to, um, to just ignore the issue altogether. So where for you was that sort of moment where you went, hold on, this is an issue and I want to do something about it? It has most things, you know, there's no moment. It, it just happens over time. And, mm -hmm. and as I moved up through the ranks of my career, I, like many women, started to see little signs that maybe I hadn't seen before. And I think it becomes particularly acute as you reach the upper echelons where it's not just doing a good job. It's not just working hard that gets you to the next level, but other attributes come into it. And this is where women start to say, hang on, I'm not being heard. I don't have the networks. 
I maybe I don't present myself properly. There's there's something that starts to happen. And again, this is a personal experience, but one that's been validated through all of the feedback I've had in in talking to people about it, um, where you start to say, there is something going on here and I may have ignored it or denied it for much of my career, but there is something going on. And I think sadly for a lot of women, um, it either brings their career to a slowdown um, or they opt out. And in my case, I opted out of the environment I was in and just said, I'm, I'm not feeling like this is where I can, I guess, go further in my career and therefore I need to take control of the situation, which of course is um, a trade I alluded to earlier. Uh, <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, there, there's a few themes that run through. We might touch on that in terms of the role that leaders and even board directors can play a little bit later, but I, I wanted to pick up on another point. I think you kind of touched on a little bit with mentioning your mentor. And, and that's a trait I've always really admired in you, which is that you are a voraciously curious individual. And I wanted to ask you when it comes to, in particular, kind of being a student of leadership, so to speak, who did you study over the early stages and, and I guess the evolution of you, your career? Who were you inspired by and, and what sort of traits and capabilities did you focus on developing in yourself to become the sort of leader that you wanted to be? Well, this woman, Bobby, Bobby Collergon was her name. This woman at Ford was certainly a role model for me in one other way. When I saw her operate, and we do forget that when we are in leadership positions, everyone watches what we do all the time. They study us and they look for messages and signals. And I observed that she was brave. She spoke her mind. And when there were a lot of yes men sitting around the table in those days, she was always the one who said what she really believed. And I asked her one day what made her so brave. And she told me that she had financial security. Um, she didn't have children. She and her husband were set up for life. And she said to me, I don't have to fear for losing my job. And I think that that's an issue for a lot of people, whether it's a financial issue or, or any other. And it was really interesting because it did make me very focused on the fact that I had to be in a financial position throughout my career where I wasn't so dependent on my job that I feared losing it. And in doing so, I feared being independent and doing the right thing, whether it was, um, you know, speaking up or leaving because I was in a situation I didn't believe in. So, you know, that was very powerful. And I saw that that lack of fear, that courage for whatever gave you that source of courage was really important to leadership. The other person who was really important in my leadership journey was actually Saul Trujillo, who was the CEO of Telstra. And he's been much maligned over the years for a variety of reasons. But as a leader, there were a few things about him that were extraordinary. One was that he had a vision for where that company was going to go. And it was an aspirational vision. Um, Telstra had been an old incumbent industry sort of sliding <laughs> downhill when I joined. And he said, no, this is a company that's going to be great. We're going to be world-class. And getting everyone focused on an aspirational vision was so powerful. And he also, he also followed through and did what he said. So when he said, we are going to invest in our capability, we're going to invest in our people, we're going to invest in our network, he did that. And so people, um, you know, began to say, look, this is a guy who wants to lead us in a direction that is exciting and we can trust that he's going to follow through and do the things he says to, to help us get there. Um, and those were, it was just an incredibly powerful thing to experience. Um, and 
you know, it's something I've taken with me ever since. I wanted to uh, ask you, I guess, if you've had a variety of roles over your, your course of your career and you mentioned being sort of opportunistic in the way that they evolved. I'm intrigued to know kind of what your criteria for decision-making uh, was because I have no doubt there were there were many forks in the road moments where there were different ways you could have gone. What was your sort of filter criteria for uh, opportunities? What did you need to see in something to go, yep, that's what I'm doing next? Oh, that's a good question, Holly. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I remember my one of my very first career choices it was the one that the decision whether to go to Ford or not. There used to be these um, legal pads; they were those yellow paper notebooks, and I, I, you know, I sat and had the pros and cons list. And I, I really do sit down for these big decisions and write out uh, pros and cons in terms of what's important to me. Um, you know, I think every one of those decisions has been different, but what's important is trying to understand yourself and, and in a way the process helps you determine what's important to you. Because when you lay those issues out, you kind of look and say, oh, the location, well, maybe the location doesn't matter so much. The money, well, maybe the money doesn't matter so much. Um, you know, the career potential, hmm, well, yes, you know, I, I do have aspirations. Um, but for me, it was always the extent to which I could make a difference. And, you know, I was starting out in marketing in those days and I had an opportunity to go to Procter and Gamble and it was, you know, the undisputed leader, uh, in marketing, whereas Ford, you know, didn't even have anyone with marketing in their title. <laughs> and for me, while the ledger lined up completely for Procter & Gamble, it was the opportunity at Ford to come in and actually create the marketing function and make a difference. So, you know, I think when I lay everything out, it comes, it came to me what was the really important factor. But I will say the other trick to every one of my decisions is that I'd make the decision and then I'd go to sleep. And when I woke up in the morning, I always knew if it was the right one or not. And I think that's how I tapped into my gut instinct. Because if I woke up feeling like, yes, that was what I wanted to do, then I knew I'd made the right one. And if I woke up thinking, oh, gosh, oh, because I did choose Procter & Gamble and I woke up the next morning yeah. and thought that isn't really what I want to do. And even though it's, you know, 20 to one in terms of the pros, it, it was that one opportunity to make a difference that really dragged me to the other side. And, and I changed my mind when I woke up. I like that. It's almost holding intention that that pros and cons list, which is probably more the head talking and then allowing that gut feeling to still emerge and go, hold on, this still has to sit right after I've slept on it. Mm, exactly. I'm eager to delve into your best and less experience. Um, I've heard you share the story of the incredible turnaround that you led there across a, a 200 store business, 4,000 strong workforce. And you said it came down to, to three really critical things. The first, which you touched on that importance of understanding the customer. The second was around developing a unique culture that would attract better staff. And the third was not taking the quick fix, but actually going the sustainable approach to how you, you went about that, that transformation. I'd love to hear on how you landed on those focuses, sort of, you know, stepping into the business, how you worked out, these are the three things we've got to prioritize. And importantly, kind of how they pragmatically came to life for you, because I think it's really easy to say, throw away lines. And we see this happen in business all the time. Oh, we, we've got to understand our customer. We've got to get closer to the customer. We've got to have a great culture where people really want to be. But I know you built some really solid initiatives that actually uh, were core to the turnaround. So I'd love to hear about how they came to life. Well, I might 
just reconfigure that a little bit in the way I tell the story because um, I think it links back to my motivation for wanting to go and do that job. And when I think about it, um, I probably was one of those people that really drank the Kool-Aid at business school. And when they say, you know, it's all about the people and it's all about customers and you're working as a team and all of these kind of, you know, wonderful notions about what make a business operate. I, I really believed those things. And I thought, you know, I'd love a challenging opportunity to, to put my beliefs to into action. And, and this best and less opportunity gave me that because, um, it was a business basically on its knees financially. And it was a business that had no, uh, competitive advantages in the sort of typical business sense. We didn't have stores in the best locations. We didn't have a strong brand. We didn't have scale. There were no real competitive advantages. So, um, well, some might say cup half empty, <laughs> that's not a great job opportunity for me. Um, I thought, well, why don't we base our strategy on creating advantage around one, our culture, because if we create the best culture and retailers, you know, aren't known necessarily for having fantastic cultures, let's build a fantastic culture and get the best people. And then let's focus the business on the customer in a way, in a really deep, deep way that, that others, as you say, often talk about, but don't really, really execute on. So, you know, call it my experiment, my grand experiment. Let's see if we can do this. And so, um, you know, the how, the how had to do with hiring the right team. So the first thing I had to do was to find people who, who also wanted to operate a business in this way. And, you know, when I'm asked what was one of the hardest things about running around best and last, it was being committed to finding people who not only had the right skills um, and had diverse skills that they could bring, but also were people who, you know, had the same values that I did and that wanted to, to build a fantastic culture. And so it was a lot of boxes to tick. One of the things I also left out, one of the great advantages was that I had had no experience in retailing or running a retailer. And again, you could say, mm, cup half empty. <laughs> That's really not a great starting point. But for me, I knew I had to bring in fantastic talent around me and leverage that talent. And often when you go into these jobs and you have lots of experience, you... you think you have the answers and, and maybe you do have the answers, but you certainly can't have all the answers. And so mm. I was in a position where I had to get people who had talent, who had different types of talent, because I also didn't want people who'd been in the discount department store business for their whole career because the world was changing so quickly. I had to bring people from different environments who are going to bring in different perspectives. So building the leadership team was the most important starting point for building the right culture. Um, I guess the the second part of that for me was um, communicating what we wanted to stand for. And, you know, you, I think a lot of executives underestimate how hard it is to communicate. You know, almost 5,000 people. How do, you, how do you talk to them about this new culture you want to build? And I thought, well, that's a good question. I mean, I've been to road shows. I've talked to the people at head office. We send out a newsletter every two months. <laughs> and I started to think, 
I'm not communicating. And, you know, this was about six, seven years ago. And I said to this, this person who asked me, I said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm, I write a, a blog every week. And I thought, mm, gosh, I don't know, A, if I'd be disciplined enough to write it, but B, whether anyone would want to read it. Um, and just at that time, my daughter introduced me to Instagram. Hmm. And Instagram is wonderful because it's visual. Um, it's easy. It's fast. And it was bang on for our demographic because a large majority of our store staff were you know, under 25. So that was the mechanism to communicate. And so I think that epiphany that, um, you know, yes, I had the right message and yes, I kind of spoke that message as a leader as much as I could, but the insight that it was not reaching and that social media was going to be this incredible tool to enable us to get that message out on a consistent basis. So, you know, I had the leadership and then the communication and, and the third piece was built around customer. And while the insights into our customer, who she was, what she wanted, were incredibly powerful for our team in terms of determining what product we put. I think the proximity to customer had one other even more powerful benefit for us as a business. Um, and this was that it helped create our sense of purpose. Um, when you work for a retailer that sells discount clothing you know, it's not like working for a not-for-profit. It's not like being in a business where you're trying to save the world or there's a, a very obvious purpose. Um, our initial purpose, obviously, was turning the business around and making it profitable so that we saved everyone's jobs. But once we got beyond that, you know, what were we really there to do? And I remember we did a promotion where we offered a $500 makeover, clothing makeover. And people from the, the company that did it said, hey, look, we've got the 2,000 responses that we got from all the people who applied and they were these 25-word responses. Why do you want this? And I remember reading them over a holiday. I was sitting by, I was on holiday, I was sitting by a pool and I read every single one of those 2,000 responses. Mm -hmm. And had this unbelievable sense of our customer and the challenges in her life and how, um, you know, having affordable clothes that look good, that made her feel good, that, you know, would actually change her life. And so I took those and I, we had a conference and I read them out, you know, the most powerful ones. And in a way, used our customer to tap into her life, her needs, and create a sense of purpose for the organization. So it, it kind of all came together, your know, leadership in the sense that you have to start from the top with the right leaders um, and choosing those leaders very, very carefully. And I'll just go on one more point here that go I think it. was so important. I talked about how people in an organization watch everything that you do. And I remember building that team. It was cru so crucial that I got the right people and thinking that I would keep one person who didn't necessarily convey the values of the organization, but I needed that role desperately and I needed them right then. And I remember thinking, you know, all of the people in this organization will look and say, you're talking about values and yet you're keeping someone on your team who you know doesn't live up to these values. You know, how can they take me seriously if I'm not living what I'm talking about mm. in every way, every day? And so, you know, the leadership 
of getting the right people around your team um, who will live the values that you're talking about and then finding ways to communicate that message again and again and again and consistently. And finally, having people around you who will hold you to account because, you know, no one can live up to those values and do the right thing every single day. But if the people around you or the people in the organization know that they can hold you to account, then, you know, I think that's the the best way to um, ensure that you yourself are living the values that you espouse. That's a sensational answer. I'm so grateful for everything you've shared there. I wanted to ask you too, you know, you come into a turnaround role, as you said, you know, challenging time in, in the company's history, uh, often not an overnight job either. <laughs> you know, it's something that's going to take months or a year or a couple of years to get done and to really turn things around to the point where they're humming. And that is a challenging thing to go through yourself in terms of the the energy that requires of you, in terms of the the challenging situations you often find yourself in with a greater frequency than you might do in a business that's um, going along nicely. How did you navigate that yourself in terms of looking after yourself, managing your time, effort and energy? And how did you keep your team and your people motivated over the course of, of that uh, period too? Oh, look, I'll talk about the organization first and then myself. Um, you know, pacing is so important. And in the early days of a turnaround, everyone is just working like crazy. Um, and in a sense, you have to, um, because it's required from the business. Now there's also, if you're creating an exciting vision for people, if you're being supportive, um, if you're celebrating those wins, then you can keep that momentum going for that period that it needs to. Um, you know, if people are on the same page with a sense of purpose, they will follow. And there's a lot of adrenaline. Um, there's a lot of energy. There has to be a lot of support, a lot of recognition. Things will go wrong. You need to accept that. So there's a way to keep that momentum going for a period. Um, but I've found that one of the real challenges of leadership is, is understanding the subtleties. For example, the subtlety of when that pacing has to change. So there will come a point in time where you cannot push people to that level. And it's better, I think, if you can recognize that and deliberately slow down the pace and and subtly shift that so that you know people can regenerate, rebuild, you can bet in what you've done before you, you know, potentially need to turn it back up again. Um, and th those are really difficult things for leaders. Another thing that was important to me was in the early days when everything was broken, you have to have a much greater level of tolerance. You know, people mm. will make mistakes because they're new to the business. They don't have the tools. You're moving at pace and you've got to be incredibly tolerant um, of people making mistakes. And, you know, while you kind of want to go, oh, my God, how did that happen? You just need to say, right, okay, why did it happen? Let's learn. Let's move on. Um, with the subtle change in pace also comes a, a ramping up of accountability because lots of things you might have in the early stages um, understood and forgiven. As things do bed down, the organization gets running better, things are humming, you then have to say, look, okay, now I have to start really holding people for accountable and for uh, holding people accountable. And if things don't come to track, well, you know, let's let's take a tougher look at that. So there's a lot to do, particularly in a turnaround where you are going through these different stages to really think about the stage you're in and, and manage accordingly. 
for me personally, uh, I'm not very good at <laughs> doing that. And it is important for leaders to, you know, have their, their outlet. And, you know, my family was incredibly supportive. Um, my husband and my daughter were part of the journey. Um, they were committed to best and less. And, you know, Jesse would, would enjoy getting, I think, getting dragged into stores on weekends <laughs> and, um, and coming along and going, oh, mom, I don't think that looks very good. So, you know, I think having a, a supportive family who were part of the journey, um, but who also, you know, could could push back and say, okay, you need to turn off. Um, because in those situations, it is very hard to turn yourself off and um, you need to know when you've pushed it to the limit. And sometimes you don't. And, you know, I know once I was so dreadfully sick, I couldn't go near the business for a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, that's not really ideal. Um, but your body will do it to you if you don't look after it. So, that is very true. So, yeah, just being conscious, being conscious of managing these things, I find, it, you know, kind of puts you in the driver's seat um, and and I think makes you a more effective leader. I wanted to ask you about your transition from uh, CEO life into uh, non-executive director land, so to speak. Uh, you have a, an extraordinary portfolio of non-executive directorships. And I wanted to ask from from that vantage point, you know, looking at uh, kind of the strategic horizon, thinking about uh, obviously you've got a huge background in in the retail side of things, and that's a lot of where the swirl of the Amazon conversation and AI and what it's going to mean for customer experience and and the entire sector at large is coming from. But I wanted to ask you, kind of from from that lens, looking at the horizon, what do you think we're almost overly fixated on in the conversation we're having? sort of in the newspapers, around the, the board table at the minute. And what do you think we're not talking about enough? Well, it's hard to say mm-hmm. that we are overly fixated on anything that's not important. Um, there's an enormous amount of focus on technology mm-hmm. because of all of the things that technology means for business, whether it's a threat or an opportunity. And for almost every business I'm aware of, it's it's both at the moment. But I think what we do struggle to do is to understand time horizons, because I find that we normally absolutely overestimate at the outset what technology can do, and we hype and we overestimate. And yet, over, say, a 10-year period, we completely underestimate <laughs> how much it can transform a business. And and being through, uh, living through the decade at Telstra where, you know, when I started as a, a marketing director, we were marketing um, fixed line calling plans. Oh, wow. Um, and a decade later, it was all about apps and digital and clouds and, and so on. So, you know, at the outset, there was an incredible amount of hype around WAP, which was the very first kind of mobile um, data application. And it was dreadful and everyone thought it was going to change the world. And it, it was, it was a disaster, but you know, it, so it didn't do anything in three years, 10 years later, it had changed telecommunications forever. So it's, it is important to focus on, but I think it's also important to just get the, the cycle to the greatest extent that we can with things that we don't know about. Um, so don't panic, don't invest too much, don't go crazy for the next couple of years, but you know, by no means um, underestimate the impact it will have on your business for the longer term. And I know you, that's how, oh, sorry, you go. I look at the topic of technology. Yeah, no, sorry, Holly, but that, that's how mm. you know, I look at the topic of technology for one. 
And I was just going to ask, I know you've mentioned diversity and inclusion already and, and also your passion for making a difference. When we look at things like the, uh, the BlackRock chairman's letter to shareholders earlier this year, how do you think the role of the board's changing in the context of where, where society's moving to, community expectations and, and the role sort of business plays in that? Well, and that speaks exactly to the, the second big topic, which I do not think is overhyped, and that is around culture. Um, culture of the business and, um, you know, I guess essentially the broader purpose for the organisation. And, you know, I think that, Oh gosh, when I was starting out at business school, we talked about the triple bottom line. So there's always been a recognition of the role that businesses need to play in society. But I think that role is becoming bigger and bigger. Um, and the recognition that, um, you know, sometimes there won't be anyone else to stand up and drive um, societal change and that, you know, business leaders do have to take on this mantle. So whether it is about culture and creating purpose in our business and, you know, doing the right thing, not just for the business, but for society, um, you know, that's always been important for boards, but I think it's now more important than ever. Um, and, you know, Touching back on technology, I think one of the biggest challenges now is the disruption that technology is making and, and is likely to make in terms of jobs and, you know, the jobs that people have and, and whether they're still available and whether people are being retrained and redeployed. And I think that businesses have a very significant responsibility, not just to operate in the best interests of, of society um, broadly, but to the people who work for them and to make sure that we do everything we can to help um, people manage through whatever dislocation is going to come down the path as a result of, of technological changes. Now, Holt, I'm extremely grateful for the time you've made available to chat today. And unfortunately, it's drawing to a close. There are two questions I'd like to ask all our guests before we let them leave. The first thing I wanted to ask you is, I guess particularly given your context of being someone who's continually found themselves in in roles where they've they've had to innovate, where they've had the responsibility for changing things, what's your best bit of advice for someone who's starting in a new role or who wants to make a new start in the role that they're in today for how they can go about setting setting a a change in motion? The first and most important thing to tell people is to back themselves. I, I often find that people are um unsure about making that change. And the piece of advice that I always use and that really my mother always used to say to me when I um, was looking to make a change or take a leap was, um, you know, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. And I think if you can erase any sense of fear and anxiety, um, you give yourself the best kind of chance to just take that leap um, and take it with a great bit of confidence. Um, so I think making the decision is the first most important. Um, and then when you have, you know, in, in any new challenge, as you, you alluded to earlier, I do love to learn and I'm hopelessly curious about everything. And, you know, I think when you jump into something new, you know, the best thing you can do is to, um, you know, be like I was at, at best and less, you know, just 
say, I actually don't know anything about this. How much can I learn from the people around me? How much can I absorb? Um, how many different perspectives can I take into account? And I, and I think that's a wonderful starting point for any any venture that you jump into. Brilliant advice. And finally, if I could ask, if you could leave listeners with one call to action today, what would you like that to be? Be brave. Speak up. If you think that the environment or the situation that you find yourself in is not one that suits you and suits your values, do something about it. Say something, put your hand up, leave, um, but you know, don't accept a situation that isn't one that you think is right. Love that. Oh, I'm so grateful for your time and your generosity of sharing today, being so open about your own uh, lessons in leadership, your experience that you've had, and, and also what drives and motivates you. I know that uh, you've been an inspiration of mine for, for years now, and I'm so grateful that I've had the opportunity to share part of the reason why that is today with our audience. So thank you so much uh, for being on the program today. Oh, well, thank you, Holly. Look, I, I love listening to your podcast because um, for all of the insights I've shared, I am still learning every day and um, going through the next stages of my career. So so thank you for the opportunity to have the chat. But um, also thanks for um, thanks for this fantastic podcast. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.